Welcome to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Andre Gonawella. I'm being joined by my co-host Ryan Rosenthal. And today we have a great conversation on counterintelligence, not with just one guest, but with two guests, Bill Priestap and Holden Triplett, who are both adjunct professors at the Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service. However, both of them had distinguished and long careers at the FBI. So Bill was actually the head of counterintelligence at the FBI between 2015 and 2018, and he led all aspects of that counterintelligence division, including the development and the implementation of the global strategy to counter foreign nations' intelligence efforts against the United States. Holden, he led the FBI office in Beijing from 2014 to 2017, and was also the deputy head of the FBI office in Moscow from 2012 to 2014, and he was also the FBI faculty chair at the National Intelligence University. Uh, Bill and Holden, uh, thank you both for coming on today. Uh, You have both co-authored some great pieces in Lawfare, some of which you're going to dig into, and we're really excited for this great conversation on counterintelligence. I'm sure our audiences as well. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. We're delighted to be here. Happy to be here. Well, Bill and Holden, thank you once again. Uh, I want to lay the groundwork by just asking a pretty basic question. It might not be a basic question, but it's, I guess, a a short one. And so what exactly is counterintelligence? Uh, Typically, we think about it in the government versus government setting, but is that all it really is? And uh, uh, Bill, I'll I'll defer to you just because you led the counterintelligence section at FBI. Sure. No, and I, I appreciate you asking that because I, I think uh, I think there's a lot of a lot of misconceptions about what it is or or is not. Let let me start with the most basic form, and that is the idea of it's basically efforts to counter the activities of hostile foreign intelligence services, almost just just like its name its name implies. But what does that really mean? Well. I think it might be helpful to take a step back for a second. And if you think in terms of there's all these nations around the world, and they're all jostling with each other for influence and power. Some nations are simply trying to retain their place in the world. Sometimes, some nations are trying to expand their place. Some nations are actually interested in conquering other nations. Regardless of what a particular nation is trying to do, though, what they all have in common is they love to keep apprised of what other nations are doing. Because obviously that helps them advance whatever their their aims are. Well, one of the ways they go about keeping apprised of what others are doing is they employ intelligence services to collect information, usually non-public information about nations they're interested in. And so you have all these nations engaged in intelligence services. Well, as a result of that, we have a whole bunch of nations engaged in countering those intelligence activities from other nations. So in effect, it's a big back and forth all day long of intelligence, counterintelligence, you get the idea. at least historically, these activities were primarily, not exclusively, but primarily focused on obtaining other nations' state secrets. Think think in terms of trying to obtain another nation's plans, intentions, and capabilities. 
And again, if I know that about another nation, know what their plans, intentions, capabilities are, I'm going to have a leg up on them when dealing with them on the the, the world stage because I know ahead of time what they're what they're intending to do. What many nations have realized, though, in order to advance their aims, it isn't enough to know just another nation's government secrets. And I'd argue that over the last 20 years, especially, the whole intelligence and counterintelligence realm has absolutely exploded. And so today, it's not just about state secrets, either obtaining another nation's state secrets or trying to stop somebody from obtaining yours. Today, it's about seeking advantages in every important area of life. You know, so from technology to scientifically, of course, militarily and diplomatically, but even, I'd argue, even academically, even the information space. It's all about, again, trying to gain an advantage over other nations so that you can advance your own nation's interests. I'm sorry for that kind of long, long answer there, but it's a, I guess my answer is a long way of saying it's far more involved than I think most people appreciate. Certainly. So now when I think of sort of the U.S. agencies that will seek to address counterintelligence, I would think of the CIA and the FBI. And when I sort of think of these two agencies, I think of the CIA as external facing, sort of dealing with all the foreign stuff. Whereas I think if the FBI is more internally facing, dealing with all the domestic stuff. So can you both sort of outline, I guess, what exactly is the FBI's role in thwarting uh, espionage? I know, Holden, you worked uh, overseas, actually, with the FBI. So I think I'd appreciate uh, maybe a bit about that as well. Sure. And, and so I think there's, there's kind of a couple things going on here. There, a number of agencies have their own uh, counterintelligence uh, agents or um, divisions. And often those counterintelligence agents are focused on how do they protect that particular agency. Um, the FBI and the CIA have a, a larger purview about sort of protecting the government writ large, right? So it's much bigger. So some military um, uh, parts of the military have their own counterintelligence. Some parts of the other parts of the, the intelligence community have their own counterintelligence agencies. But the Bureau and the agency kind of have the larger groups of that. Um, so the, the division between domestic and foreign for the CIA and FBI is really on who is the primary collector of intelligence for the government, right? So domestically, that's the FBI. They sort of wear the DNI hat, the director of national intelligence hat. Overseas, that's generally the CIA is wearing that hat. Now, what, where it gets complicated is the Bureau also has um, investigative responsibilities. So different investigative responsibilities for law enforcement purposes. And those investigative responsibilities, those are worldwide. The FBI is the primary investigative agency for the federal government. So when you have crimes um, that are still violations of US law, but they might happen outside um, the actual territory of the United States, that's still the FBI's territory in terms of they are supposed to do that investigation. So often it gets a little bit complicated where you have many cases, they'll have an intelligence piece as well as an investigative piece. If that's domestic, that's purely the FBI. If there's if it's overseas, then it gets a little bit more complicated, some of which I can't really get into today. Um, so that's where it was for years. And let's just put one more complication on this, right? So the barrier between foreign and domestic used to be very clear. If you were going to recruit somebody, you're going to be face to face with them. 
Um, but just like today, none of us are actually face to face. So if you're recruiting someone who's sitting in the United States, but that intelligence officer is sitting in a foreign country, then who's responsible? Is that a foreign recruitment or is that a domestic recruitment, right? So it gets ever more complicated about how to divide these things up and cyber attacks that happen or exploitations make it extremely complicated. Um, so that's the, the larger picture, unfortunately, that I think Bill and I keep giving you answers that things are a lot more complicated than they ever were. So um, back in the day, it used to be a little bit simpler, but those are the main divisions that exist. All right. So now with this uh, context, which is extremely helpful to kind of lay out what exactly counter intel looks like, uh, I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts and maybe through your experiences, what the, the actual threat of foreign intelligence services is who are actively operating in the United States. Of course, we, we've heard of uh, Maria Butina, who was working on behalf of Russia. We've heard of Jerry Lee, who was a, a former CIA officer spying uh, on behalf of the, the PRC. And so um, what, what does this actually look like in, in practice? And could you maybe point to some of the counterintelligence successes and failures? Yeah, so I'm happy to kick it off. I mean, I, I think you, you've named a couple of, uh, you know, what we would probably characterize as, as successes or the, what the U.S. will typically characterize as success. And really, it's a, it's a case. It's a prosecution. Um, that doesn't always encompass all of the successes that are out there. Um, so, as I said, the FBI often is thought of as a, as a law enforcement agency, but that's just one of its tools. So there are ways to thwart uh, intelligence operations that don't always rely on an, an actual prosecution. So you could there are intelligence tools and tactics you can use to thwart intelligence operations. Um, unfortunately for our listeners today, that, that stuff rarely comes out. Um, if there's a prosecution, it's going to be public, at least at the very end, um, will be. Um, but if there's a sort of an intelligence disruption, that's often going to be kind of quietly done in the shadows. Um, so all I mean to say is that there's often a whole lot more going on than actually becomes public um, in this circumstance. Um, but there have been, I mean, you can look on the economic espionage side. Um, there's a really a steady drumbeat of cases coming out from the FBI and DOJ highlighting just the sort of brazen uh, activity of, of mostly in this context, uh, it's the PRC, but you, you have a, a, just a sort of handful of other countries, including Russia and others who are also kind of getting in on the act. And countries are seeing the, the um, you know, the value and, and basically the low cost effort that's required to do a lot of this economic espionage. And they're, they're jumping right in on it. Um, and so you, you, there are a good number of cases out there. Um, unfortunately, they're, they're probably only a small representative of, of what's of the successes um, that the U.S. government is enjoying. But Bill, you have any additional thoughts? Yeah, let, let me let me just touch on um, actually the first part there, more the the scope of the problem, and then secondly, this this idea of of successes um, in regards to the scope of the problem. I think it's 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 critical to keep in mind that the U.S. is the sole superpower on the face of the earth. Um, I'd argue that China is closing fast, but, but right now we're in. I think what too many people forget is not a lot of other foreign nations that their governments are waking up in the morning thinking that's terrific. Isn't it terrific for freedom loving people everywhere that the U.S. is the sole superpower? Well, in, in my and Holden's experience, that, that's not what, what we were living. Instead, what we were living is there's a whole lot of foreign governments who are, are coming after or are targeting the U.S. in a variety of regards every minute in every day. Um, and so again, if you, if you keep in mind that we're the sole superpower, that means we have more of what others want. 
It means our government has more plans and tensions capabilities that other, others want. It means our private sector has more information, knowledge, data that others want. And so the, the long and short of it is I, the, the problem is really big. And as long as we remain the sole superpower, um, we are going to be targeted by lots of people in a ton of ways. Um, secondly, I, I guess I'd, I'd ask that we be a little careful about, about this, this, what we term successes in this realm. Um, when, when Holden and I were in government, the, the, the government will often define success as an arrest or prosecution in this space. And if success is defined as, you know, holding someone accountable for engaging in activities they shouldn't engage in, well, then, yep, that, that's a success. But I'm not convinced that our country should be, should be thinking of that as success. At least in my mind, success is retaining whatever advantages we have. So retaining our state secrets, not letting them out the door in a government sense. Retaining our intellectual property and trade secrets and whatever other information our businesses possess that give them an advantage globally over businesses from other countries. What I'm getting at is if, if somebody has obtained that information and taken it back to their foreign country, well, then I'd argue we've lost. We've lost whatever advantage we had had because of our, our, our unique knowledge that others didn't have. Um, it is nice that we bring people to justice for committing this wrong. But again, the, the, the strategic advantage has been lost. So uh, again, to, to me, the, the arrest prosecution, and I, I don't want to discount them completely. I spent a lot of years of my life in that space. Um, it, it does have some positive impact, but I think it's more important to try to prevent the wrongdoing in the first place. Bill, I think you make a really good point in terms of how we need to redefine what success is. Because, I mean, certainly we want to prevent our information from being taken. I think that should be the whole point of it. But before we move on in this interview, I sort of wanted to touch back on uh, something Holden you said about the complications that have sort of basically that define how we respond to counterintelligence. And I just wanted to ask you both about what coordination exists between the FBI and the CIA slash other sort of foreign facing intelligence community agencies? Like what does coordination actually look like between all of these agencies? Sure. I'm happy to start off on that. I mean, obviously we, we can't get into a whole lot of detail on the specifics of how that, that happens. But what I can tell you is, you know, I, Bill was in the, the bureau prior to nine 11. And then of course, right after, and I came in soon after it, um, but there, in response to the terrorist attacks, then there really was a wholesale change in the way that the intelligence community uh, shares information. Um, and there really is a really good structure at this point um, to, in, to ensure that there is sharing on those issues where equities overlap, right? Um, it's not perfect. Um, agencies are set up in different ways. Um, and, you know, in the end of the day, uh, the CIA's main job is to provide intelligence, um, you know, to policymakers. Um, the FBI's main job is to to mitigate threats, right, to stop these threats. And so, as a result of that, sometimes uh, different missions 
there's different aims and how they would uh, do that. So, and people even within the same organization can disagree about outcomes. So that's not to say that everything is always perfectly cooperative and we always work together in, in um, perfect harmony, but it's, it is leaps and bounds better um, than how it was before. There's an appreciation um, that uh, only by working together can we really solve these issues. Um, I think there's an appreciation on both sides. I certainly can talk about the FBI and CIA that, um, by combining the ways in which we deal with these issues and the specific, um, you know, powers that were given by by law, um, that we can be extremely effective in mitigating some of the, the various threats and risks that the United States faces. Um, and so, there's all sorts of ways that that is coordinated, um, really kind of top to bottom, um, from a leadership level to kind of the the ground workers. Um, again, I can't get into the details of how exactly that works. Um, but I can assure you that it's certainly in these areas, in, in the intelligence world and in counterintelligence, um, we really are shoulder to shoulder in terms of looking at problems and trying to work out solutions. Um, we disagree, as you know, as everyone does in every family, you know, between brothers and sisters. Um, but you know, at, at the end of the day, we we all have kind of the same mission that we want to protect the country, and we realize that those differences that we have are often about methodology and less about what we want as an end goal. The only thing I'd I'd add to uh, to what Holden said is, and let me start with the idea I mentioned a couple of uh, minutes ago on the, the the scope of this foreign intelligence threat is huge, and so not for a second did I ever work with a, another uh, not not just U.S. intelligence community agency, but really any other U.S. government agency where there wasn't an appreciation that nobody can effectively combat the, this threat alone. And so um, certainly I, uh, over my career, all I saw was more and more and more willingness to come together, not just with the CIA, but again, with, with organizations across government to deal with, again, with the scope, the scale of the threat today. Um, and that even includes, of course, working with with foreign partners as as necessary. But it, there are not enough U.S. government resources in collectively, let alone in one organization, to effectively combat this threat. We have to come together and pull in the same direction. Undoubtedly. And Bill, you said that the scope is huge. And if we boil this down, counterintelligence down to one thing, the, the reason we have it is because there are foreign intelligence services, foreign governments turning American citizens against America, right? They are, Americans are committing treason by providing information or contacts to these intelligence services. And so, um, and, and Holden and Bill, uh, both of you, I, I, I'd be curious to, to your responses as to how extensive is the recruitment of American citizens by foreign governments? And has this changed, right? Because now we see technology playing such a huge role. Are we seeing maybe a less of a reliance on human sources and more of reliance on, say, you know, hacking and a more technologically enabled espionage. Sure. So I, I think the the answer. I mean, unfortunately, I mean, all the ones that we're giving, it's complicated, right? I mean, I think that there is, um, it is extremely widespread. Let me just say that um, so widespread that it's not clear that anyone really has a full understanding um, of where it is. We have indications. Um, so certainly on the kind of economic espionage side of things, where we've seen countries, um, obviously China is, is, is really kind of at the vanguard of this, where they've made advances that simply just weren't possible um, without having, a, you know, kind of the, the speed with which these these changes and advancements are making without doing this type of espionage. Um, 
And that doesn't mean that we're, we're seeing actually where it's taking place. We just can see the results of it, right? So that gives us kind of a indirect sort of um, evidence that, that it's going on. Um, and Bill can uh, uh, talk a little bit more about this, but basically every, every time you look somewhere um, and you, you find it, um, more and more companies um, are, are facing this threat. And if they look closely, they'll see that they have probably somebody within their company has already been approached or has already been put on a targeting list for you know technology or even just simple mundane plans and intentions of, of companies. Um, so it is massive. The, the tools and tactics of the intelligence world have really proliferated. Um, and you know the, the old model um, that we kind of have in, in sort of our minds in, in the United States and really was sort of the Soviet Russian model as well, that those tools and tactics are only practiced by the intelligence services themselves. Um, that's very different, um, say, with China, um, where you find some of these tools and tactics across the government and outside of the government as well. Um, cyber is, is a wonderful example of that, where it's given people um, really a lot of access to individuals and information that just would not have been possible from a resource standpoint. You just can't deploy that many people. Um, but I really want that something that Bill and I really try to emphasize with, with individuals is to understand that there's very few sort of brute force cyber attacks that happen they're almost always hybrid. Someone is involved, a person on the inside, either wittingly or unwittingly. Either they're they're falling for some spoofed email or they're being socially engineered or they're cooperating in some sort of way that may never come to light. Um, you know, the solar winds is a great example where, you know, sort of portrayed in the media as this wonderfully sophisticated hack. And in the end, it may have come down to, a, you know, a, an, an individual, an intern at the company who posted his not incredibly creative uh, password of SolarWinds123 on his GitHub site, right? So at the end of the day, you know, it, there's really, those cyber operations are, are really about hybrid. And I don't, I wouldn't say that they've gotten away from human. I think at the end of the day, the human part of it has become even more important because they're really the key to getting into and understanding um, governments and business. They simultaneously represent the most vulnerable uh, population uh, or piece of it, and really are the, the government and the, and the business's greatest assets. Um, and so they are targeted like never before. Um, and this, unfortunately, is something I think that isn't fully appreciated um, on in the company side. I guess what I'd add there is that, you know, generally speaking, uh, the, the crown jewels of foreign intelligence recruitment efforts are usually, is usually a, a knowledgeable person. Data, um, you know, information, uh, you know, uh, obtained through technical cyber, other technical means, of course, is always valuable and can be, can be very valuable. But what is often more valuable is, is somebody who understands that data, how it was compiled, how it's exploited, um, so on and so forth. And so, um, I guess what I'm trying to say there is that the human element of the intelligence and counterintelligence game has never gone away and never will go away. It will always play an extremely important place in countries' intelligence and counterintelligence efforts. So I want to dig further into this human element. And, uh, you know, you both had mentioned sort of, uh, you know, for those who are wittingly sort of... Uh, uh, you know, convinced to give this information for those who, uh, you know, wittingly, willingly, you know, give this information, like aside from, you know, money, delusionment with a home government, 
Uh, what are like the motivating factors that drive, you know, individuals to actually actively, you know, work for these foreign governments? Are there like any typical profiles of these assets? Like, are there any trends in terms of like personality or background that make them particularly vulnerable? vulnerable sorry can't even say that word <laughs> but uh i mean bill you said i mean typically they're very knowledgeable people could you expand on sort of you know what who these people are and why sure um and i, I hate to come back to this idea again it, there, there's no easy answer it's 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 as complex as human beings are complex and i mean just think of you know what what, what drives what drives us to do to do all the things we're doing but uh, you know, in a general sense, you can think of things like, uh, you know, money or ideology or, you know, you're being disillusioned with um, your particular government. And so, again, you you, you want to hurt it in some manner. Um, but people are also also driven by sex um, and, and access to sex. Uh, people are driven. Um, Basically, at times to lead more exciting lives or to feel uh, to feel more valued and important in their existence than they might otherwise feel in their uh, in their ordinary lives. And so, at least in, in my opinion is that there's a whole lot of of different things. Sometimes it's a combination of those things. Sometimes it's just uh, just one of them. But it it, it truly does. It truly does depend, and um, I not that there aren't any trends or patterns, but I I think it's I, I think it, the, the the motivations are as different as 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 people in this regard. Holden, yeah, I mean, I would just add. I mean, this is the the hallmark of a of an experienced and well trained intelligence officer is to identify. Um, the particular motivations of an individual, um, and you know what what are they looking for? How might they decide to sort of, as you said, um, you know, to commit treason against their country? Uh, oftentimes, if you'll read sort of the old reports about some of the more famous um, spies out there, they they kind of they engage in a bit of cognitive dissonance that they think that you know, Robert Hansen's is a great example where he believed he was really helping the FBI and helping the U.S. government. Um, you know, and I'll, I'll sort of leave that to to more. Um, trained people in the psychological realm, whether or not that's actually, they really believe that or they're kidding themselves at what level they're sort of deceiving themselves. But that certainly seems to operate um, that there's, you know, and so an experienced intelligence officer will will exploit any of these kind of motivations. And so, or an ability for someone to lie to themselves, um, they'll look for things um, that they want. Um, and sometimes they're more base than, than, you know, the kind of more, the most base, uh, uh, desires that people have. Um, they don't have to be necessarily very complicated. And they'll use that to kind of move them down the path. Um, you know, people sort of, it's often portrayed in, in movies as, as, you know, someone gets talked to, and then within the first few minutes, they're being asked to work for someone. And that's just not how it works. If you read the cases that have come out um, from the Bureau and the DOJ, it is often a, a much longer process where you are, you know, they, people are slowly, by the Foreign Intelligence Services, slowly move down the path to a point at which then they realize, my gosh, I've, I've done all these things already. I, I have no way out. I have to continue to do it. Um, and so really the key is helping people understand when that first approach is happening to be able to identify it um, and say that, you know, this is what's happening before they start to commit tiny little, you know, kind of acts and being, you know, salami slicing their sort of uh, 
you know, their movement down the path to a point at which they've, they've gone too far. And at that point, they're, they're already committed. So before we move outside of the government context, I just want to talk for a moment about the insider threat, right, from within the U.S. government by U.S. government personnel. And so we saw during the Cold War, certainly there were double agents and, you know, officers being turned on both sides, um, both in, in the Soviet Union and in the United States, uh, the famous case of Aldrich's Ames. Um, and but I, I guess when you kind of think about it in in a short kind of hand way, it's it's almost more treacherous than other scenarios, just because these are people in positions of public trust who have access to confidential and classified information. And so, while much of the work of the counterintelligence world is to identify and manage, is there a way to preempt or prevent these types of situations from occurring? No, I, I well, I shouldn't say no. I think there's a way to potentially lessen the number of incidents that occur. Um, but I, I, I don't think I, I don't think the government could could find a way to prevent it from ever happening. And I, I don't know how many government employees there are at any one time, but I, I think it's in the neighborhood, the neighborhood of about two million. Obviously, not all of those two million employees have access to uh, you know, sensitive or secret or top secret information, but a good amount, a good amount do, um, which means all of those people would be interested, um, would would be of interest to foreign intelligence services. What I'm getting at is that the, the number of current employees who possess information of value to other nations is pretty darn large. Then just add in all the retired people who, while they're no longer working for government and may or may not possess a clearance anymore, still have knowledge in their head that would be of value to others. What I'm getting at is that the, call it the population set here, is enormous, absolutely enormous. And how you're going to ever prevent all of those people, you know, from, from never uh, working um, for an adversarial nation is, is is basically impossible. But again, you can you can absolutely lessen the number of people who do that. And Holden, uh, why don't I turn to you to to touch on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think this is where there's um, sort of a misunderstanding of of how to deal with with risk um, across. I mean, it, it, at times in the government, but certainly we see this in the private sector, um, is that people are looking to eliminate it. Um, and there may be some types of risk that you could just not participating in certain types of activities. But by and large, most of the time, you're going to be left to managing the risk, right? How do you manage it down to a much smaller piece of it? Um, and so and maybe this will be a nice transition to the, the uh, private side, but this is where businesses often find themselves now at this point. They cannot eliminate the risk from nation states. Um, they are, you know, even if they decide not to you know, have a business or have a subsidiary in, say, China or Russia, it doesn't matter. They're, they, they're still kind of in the game wherever they're located in the world. But they can manage that risk, and they can manage it down to a a much much smaller um, likelihood that they're going to be uh, hit. And then, if they are um, targeted and actually exploited, and information is taken out, they can come up with plans um, essentially to respond to that. So they can limit the damage that's done. Um, it's much in the same way of like they should start to think of this as just part of the the environment. Um, you could almost make it a, an analogy to the the pandemic. Um, we're not going to you know. The, the very nature of, of humans and how we interact and with, with animals and, and 
close proximity, we can certainly manage that risk to a smaller and smaller level where there's hopefully less pandemics that happen, but we will never be able to eliminate it completely. So really the idea is how do you manage it so it's small and what are the proper amount of resources to put towards that? And then with what resources you have left, then you can manage what happens when something slips through the cracks. Um, and so I think kind of what Bill is getting at the end of the day is that, you know, there's a huge number of people with clearances and who could be targeted. And like we said, not everyone who's coming to light as, um, you know, essentially who's committing American citizens who are committing espionage is the full scope. And the U.S. government is not necessarily finding all these people, but it's still a relatively small number. Um, so not to say that the, you know, the U.S. government mousetrap is perfect, um, but I don't think we're going to get to a place where we have zero um, uh, you know, essentially uh, espionage cases or um, cases where you have a, an insider in the United States. Um, and so really the focus should be on, you know, don't let the sort of pursuit of the perfect here be the enemy of the good. What is the good program for limiting it? And then for preparing for a time that may happen where unfortunately someone may get through. So now transitioning outside of this government context, there has been a significant conversation around the role of intelligence activities around universities, uh, particularly related to China and these Confucius Institutes that they have been sponsoring. So if we take a step back, have educational institutions always been targeted by our adversaries? What value do they actually provide to these foreign governments? Yeah. So, I mean, looking historically, I mean, I think in some ways, yes. I mean, the, the Cold War was a little bit different um, in this, and this has been highlighted by a number of um, commentators out there that there was less economic overlap um, between the United States and the Soviet Union, um, and so the the competition in that in that um, sphere was was more limited um, than say what is taking place between the United States and China um, in the sort of economic sphere at this point. Um, so what that means is that certainly the universities were always producing a significant amount of. Uh, science and technology um, information or, or you know, R&D research and development they were doing that was of interest to the Soviet Union or to other um, countries out there. Um, and they were absolutely targeting universities um, to do that. Um, there was a little bit of a, a, a different approach. There was a thought that, you know, it's a kind of um, approach about there, there could be some cooperation um, at a, a basic science level um, with uh, Eastern Bloc countries and the Soviet Union at that time. Um, but the previous administration, and it, it appears this administration is taking a somewhat different tactic, um, different look at that. Um, and the idea is that China is heavily targeting um, universities for a number of things, um, not just for S&T sort of you know, R&D research, but you know, they're trying to police discourse on campus. They're looking to recruit uh, current students and professors in order to kind of control uh, conversations, certainly about China or about different types of spheres. And and certain universities where that are kind of feeder universities to the government, they're looking to recruit people early so that they have their kind of clutches into them before they get into government space. Um, so they're doing a whole lot in this area. Um, and so certainly one of the things universities need to look at is, is the ways that, that these intelligence services are operating on their campus and the free reign that they're unfortunately often given to do this um, because there's a, there's a whole gambit of activities that are taking place. Uh, Andre, the only thing I'd add is um, I thought Holden said it very well, but is this idea of think of how many how many people to include leaders in our government rotate in and out of government and academia. And so it's not just about, um, you know, recruiting young, you know, bright students and about what they may become, but also about trying to influence those 
who might have just left government and in four or eight years with a new administration might be in another senior, even more senior position in government. And so the the the, the open uh, nature and the, the 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 free flow of information afforded on our college campuses, the access you can have to to students, professors, what have you. Um, it just gets back to your the question of yeah I think they've always been of interest but I think they're even of of greater interest today. So this kind of raises a, a follow up in my head about how successful they've actually been. I mean I'm a a college student. Andre is also a college student. We're both grad students at universities. Um, when you on you know on balance um, from in your perspectives and your experiences to the extent that you can actually answer this question. How effective has it really been? I would just caution that Confucius Institutes often are, are you know, a, a particular manifestation of, of, of PRC influence um, that people focus on. It's often very easy. It's 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 um, for a long time they were they were kind of prolific. There has since sort of been a, a turn in the other direction where a lot of them are being closed. Um, but there are a, a number of ways in which um, China and other countries are having uh, a pretty significant influence on campus. Um, what I would say is that I think that there is a, a bit of um, kind of head in the sand, unfortunately, with 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 some institutions and and some individuals in these institutions that they they do not want to believe that um, individuals are potentially exploiting the university um, and they're looking to recruit students or take information or recruit faculty that might be in there. Um, and and I think to some degree, uh, um, I think that. Um, the government, and that certainly we, when I was there, we're not doing the best job of explaining it. Um, and one of the things I think that happens is, is you know, especially with, let, let's take the example of, of Chinese students, um, you know, which has been kind of a hot topic of how to manage what may be um, some issues related to that, right? Um, and unfortunately, it's been portrayed at times as if this is, a, you know, a large group of, of individuals who are all potentially threatening. And that's really not the right way to think about this, right? Um, the idea of having come on it, kind of command and control. This is a particular student that was sent over to the United States in order to get this piece of information. Certainly that happens, but by and large, that's not the majority of them. Um, but what they are, and this is, I think, the really key point that both government and businesses really need to focus on, is that they are a vulnerable population. So once a, a student may get access to an individual or a piece of information or equipment or technology that the intelligence service wants, that is the right. That is the time in which they will then start to exert influence and try to either by you know by hook or by crook ensure that that student continues to to um, provide that or not continues but starts to provide that information to them. Um, you know, and these authoritarian regimes often have a wide amount of, of of tools and tactics and levers they can use against them. Many of them very scrupulous, uh, leaning on families, uh, you know, arresting family members in order to induce students and, and others to, to do their bidding. Um, and so people really need to understand universities that, you know, the, the point isn't that these people are all threats by any means, and, and the, the vast, vast majority of them are not. They're here for, for one reason, and that's to, to learn and to be part of the community. Um, but they are extremely vulnerable. Um, and so not recognizing that vulnerability um, is a major mistake. Um, so thinking about how to protect them, how to prevent them from being exploited is where universities really need to be. Ryan, I, in regards to how how successful have they been, I I think anybody in the the U.S. who who thinks they have an answer to that, I guess I'd I'd 
I'd question because I, I don't I don't think we can answer that. Um, I mean, we, what we really have to ask is, is our adversaries, how successful have your efforts been? But by, by that, I mean, I mean this. So the, the level of activity that we've seen um, is extremely worrisome to me. But what worries me even more is the things we 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 don't know about, and so it which could be unidentified activities, and so if if the level of activity is already worrisome, you, you got to ask what are, what might what else might we be missing? But if we're missing an awful lot, then it's it's easy to answer how successful that's been. If we're not missing an awful lot or not missing anything, then yeah, it's it's worrisome. But you know, we've got we've got control of it. But again, I, I don't know how anybody in the U.S. can say with a straight face uh, we know the answer to that question. So now, moving away from academia, what about the private the private sector? Uh, what is the nature of corporate espionage like? And exactly. How damaging is corporate espionage? Like, for example, is the theft of trade secrets and intellectual property, is that actually having a consequential impact on U.S. interests? And then, I guess, how do we combat this? Should there be more public-private coordination? Sure. Let me, uh, let me try to tackle that first. Um, so I, I guess similarly to the scope of the overall foreign intelligence threat, in, in my mind, the threat to our, our businesses is absolutely massive. And I, I like to think of it in kind of three buckets, with the, the first one being basically the, the, the activities or the events that we know about in, that, are, that are publicly known, that we read about in our newspapers every day. And if you follow this stuff like Holden and I do, it seems like we're reading more and more of this this type of of activity, um, but but that's kind of bucket number one. Bucket number two are the are the activities or incidents we know about, but that are not public. And when I say we know about, I mean our government knows about, and when we were in government, that we knew about, and. What we saw there is there's a whole lot of activity that you become aware of that for a whole variety of reasons never becomes public. And so while we're reading an awful lot of this about this activity in the papers, what I'm trying to say is there's even more that the government knows about that we're not reading about every day. And then the third bucket, and this gets back to the, the last question of, in regards to universities as well. But again, it's what I most worry about. And it's the unknown incidents or unidentified incidents. The government has very limited resources overall against the scope or the size of this, of this threat. And so it can only identify so much. It can only work and investigate so much. Well, how many other things are going on that nobody's paying attention to? And how damaging is that is that to our country? But I'll hold on, if you don't mind, I'll turn it over to you on the uh, your take on the damage. Yeah, thanks. But I mean, I, I think that sets it up well. I mean, I, 
it's difficult to um, ascertain, but as I mentioned, there's some advances that have really been um, been made that could not have happened without um, you know, sort of widespread use of this. So the difficulty with this a lot of times is that the impact, um, one, it's often indirect and can take some time to be felt. So um, what you often, just a typical example, um, an employee working for a company steals a significant amount of research or a type of technology um, and then they quit and take that to a company that they've started in another country, right? Um, say China or Russia or some of the others. Um, and then they'll start to, to you know, maybe the exact same product. It may be a slight different version of it. Um, and then they'll start to compete. Um, and sort of for that company in the U.S. to feel that um, may take a little bit of time. But when you look at the overall kind of plans for China, right, and one sort of notorious and Everyone talks about obviously all the time is the it's made in China uh, 2025, um, but which the government has, as the Chinese government rather, has tried to downplay recently, but it's still a, a central tenet of their development program. Um, but what's really concerning about this is that it isn't about building particularly uh, profitable companies, it's about holding market share, about having control of the domestic market and then expanding out to the international market. So when you think about the damage that this is doing, how do you do this? How do you control those markets? Well, you find out who is the top in their field, be it in medical devices, agricultural machinery, semiconductors. You take their products, you try to improve them, or and then even if you can't, you're just selling a cheaper version of it, and you compete in all sorts of unscrupulous ways, right? They can do you know, uh, use their intelligence services to uh, damage uh, private companies, which we've seen them do. We can we've seen them use it to get uh, unfair sort of treatment in foreign countries, and so that their products are are treated better than maybe American or other products that are out there. Um, and so, in, in my mind, what, when you think about the damage, it's it, it's monumental, right? This the idea is to to take the 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 most important assets from some of the top of the line American companies and transfer them over to essentially another country's companies so that they can control these markets at home and as well as overseas. Andrew Ryan, one thing I, I, I feel I should add there is we thought, meaning Holden and I thought this damage is is so large that we, we actually want to help. And um, as I mentioned before, the government is limited in a lot of ways, um, primary one being the resources, and second as far as as far as you know a focus on holding people accountable, when I think the real focus has to be on again preventing and protecting businesses, preventing the bad activity, protecting businesses in the first place. But again, we felt so strongly about it. We, we've actually set up a business, to help better protect companies from this threat. So that if that gives you any, any indication of how bad we think it is. Absolutely. And I've actually, I'd, I'd love to kind of hear about what it is you guys actually do in advising uh, businesses, both you know public and private. And really, have we seen an uptick in interest within corporate America in trying to combat such efforts? Because there are many individuals like yourself with this great deal of government experience that can be easily transferred to the private sector. We see this across the board. And so I think hearing from, from you two and, and your experiences since leaving government and how useful your experiences are in helping businesses wrangle with this problem. Sure. I, I mean, I, I think it's they're coming at it in a couple of different ways. Um, 
one, we, we from talking with a number of different companies and sort of our own sort of looking at them is that this is the, the idea of, of understanding how your people, your employees could be recruited, exploited um, is, is really kind of at the very beginning of, of kind of getting a greater, a broader understanding in companies. Um, some have an appreciation of it. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of times it'll get misdiagnosed as a, as a cyber problem, right? So an individual, an employee uses their employee access to take information. They happen to do it from a computer where a lot of this is stored. And then it said, oh, well, we have a, we have a technical issue, right? So that's a misdiagnosis of, of the issue, unfortunately. But really, that's at the nascent piece of where probably cybersecurity was say five or six years ago, or even maybe more like eight years ago, when it was just starting to kind of get movement and companies were starting to pay attention to it a bit more. It had been around for a while, but no one took the threat as seriously. So we're starting to see, it looks like we're getting close to that tipping point where where companies realize that they're not going to get very far with just doing cybersecurity or just doing you know, uh, facility security. They're going to need to understand the access that their employees have and how to protect them uh, from being exploited. Getting back to the idea that we talked about before, just that you've got an extremely um, vulnerable population, um, and so I, I think that understanding is coming along. Um, but there's there's still some um, there's still a lot of groundwork uh, to be done. Um, they just don't fully appreciate it um, as a as an issue that they're going to face, even if they see it kind of on a sort of daily basis. Um, you know, it's either from cases that are brought by the FBI and DOJ or in various kind of media reports. Um, a lot of times it's thought of as like, well, that's something that's going to happen to someone else, not to me. Um, and so hoping that people kind of raise awareness of this, that not only is it likely to happen to you, but it's likely already happened to you and it may be happening right now. So so now bringing this conversation into contemporary geopolitics, uh, you both actually authored a piece recently in Lawfare discussing the threat of espionage with regards to vaccine development, contact tracing and health information all big things as we face this COVID-19 pandemic. So how much of this current espionage is designed to enable these countries to procure solutions on their own, as opposed to how much of it is actually designed to actively harm the U.S. COVID response? Is this case, is this a case of like influence building and promoting a domestic strength, or is this actually working to undermine the United States? So. Uh- I would say that there's a there's a difference in kind of the blocks. As, as as Bill mentioned earlier, there's a whole number of countries that are really looking at that use their intelligence services to improve their um, the makeup and, and you know getting information, and so they may be using it to kind of pull in more information about the vaccine or about COVID nineteen. Um, there's two countries in particular that seem to have seen this, you know, Russia and China, um, as an opportunity to. Um, one, either potentially so discord in the U.S., which is kind of more the Russian model. You see them sort of uh, promoting sort of anti-vaxxer um, kind of uh, disinformation that's out there, um, where China is using this as more of, a, of a, an opportunity to um, poke holes at, criticize, and pick at the U.S. system um, writ large and and advocate for the Chinese system and the Chinese system to response that was a better solution to that. Um, and so those are kind of the two main worlds of it, uh, Russia and China taking information and trying to hurt the U.S. response, and then a whole host of other countries, some of which we detail in there, that are just trying to understand the problem better. Uh, so, um, again, we, we, we'd have to ask the, these other countries who are you know, targeting our our research or what have you, what, really what their intent is. But to, to me, either way... E- 
let's say for argument's sake, their intent is just to get more or better vaccine so they can give it to their their people, um, you know, more quickly, what have you. Well, e- either way, we end up being hurt by that. And by that, I mean, e- either it prevents us from selling and making money, because if we had the, the best vaccine or whatever companies did, they put in a whole lot of time, energy, money into developing that. And I'd argue they should be rewarded for their efforts. Um, if if the vaccines weren't going to be sold, but we're just going to be given given away anyway, well, there's an awful lot of goodwill that can be derived when you're giving something as important as a vaccine to to a country, what have you. And so again, if if what if it was our vaccine and we, we we're not selling it, but we're going to give it away, we lose all the goodwill we would have garnered from from you know on our own deciding to give it away and so i guess my my attitude is even if they want it for you know humane purposes they're still doing activity that absolutely is is harming us it's strengthening them and harming us and so um well obviously you can tell from my tone it's it's just unacceptable so, Bill and, and Holden, we we take counterintelligence very seriously in the United States, as you both know very well. And this typically uh, materializes itself in the prosecution of individuals by the Department of Justice. Um, but as you know, we see this espionage in the corporate world in particular. There are the pursuit of foreign executives who might be linked to foreign intelligence services and. I guess with that, are we are we opening a Pandora's box because the United States and U.S.-based companies operate around the globe and in many cases in adversarial countries. Holden, you know this by you know working in Russia and China. And so, are are U.S. business executives now under a greater threat of prosecution abroad because of harsher U.S. Uh, prosecution of foreign executives at home? So I I want to. I want to separate those, and, and I understand the the, um, the question you're asking, um, but I think that is a, that's a conflation that, that China and Russia want to make. They want to say essentially that their detention of, of U.S. executives um, and individuals is a response to the U.S., and and that is 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 totally bogus. Um, China, uh, in particular, but Russia as well, has been detaining individuals, um, American others, for a long time. Um, and it has very little to do um, with any type of violation of Chinese law, despite how they may portray it. I mean, there's some uh, plenty of examples. Um, unfortunately, the Canadians have kind of taken it on the nose um, with this, where um, there was an individual um, named Su Bin, um, who was uh, a Chinese citizen who was in China, uh, excuse me, in Canada, and the U.S. was trying to extradite him to the United States. Um, as a result of that, um, the Garretts um, were arrested in China, um, purportedly for all sorts of nefarious purposes that they, you know, that they were taking on vis-a-vis North Korea and the border up near you know, Dandong. Um, and then more, most recently, the, the two Michaels from Canada were arrested um, as a result of um, Meng Wanzhou, the CFO and daughter of um, the uh, founder of, of Huawei. Um, so these are... Chinese responses. They've been characterized as we're, we're finally taking action on essentially individuals who have always been violating the law, but that's ludicrous. This is China has made a practice, um, as we've written about, of d- 
detaining, um, exit banning individuals uh, within China, which is essentially they don't allow them to leave without explanation sometimes, all to gain either information about their companies, um, to try to get information about um, you know, plans and intentions within the government, all sorts of, of, of intelligence uh, requirements that they're looking to, to garner. So this has been going on for a, for a long time. Um, and this equivocation between what's happening in the United States with regards to violations of law by um, you know, Chinese, uh, either PLA affiliated individuals, um, is, is not really the same. So they're trying to equate the two and trying to say that this is a response to it, but I'd really encourage listeners here to disaggregate them and realize that China has been doing this for a long time for its own purposes, but they want to at least give it some legitimacy and a cloak of, or a cloak of legitimacy, um, by portraying it as a law enforcement action. I guess from in regards to the U.S. government's position on uh, on this, I mean, it's just it, it's you know it's it's beyond the nature of it is is beyond serious. Meaning, when a foreign country is uh, unjustly detaining, or if a foreign country unjustly detains one of our citizens, um, well, again, I, 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 that to me is 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 beyond serious. And um, I, I don't have the answer. I'm not in government in regards to what the appropriate response is, but um, it certainly deserves one. So I want to circle back to a bit about the conversation on solar winds and sort of all this cyber space issue, all of this cyber warfare that's happening. So basically, I want to ask about the difficulties in conducting counterintelligence over cyberspace just because we see so much of this espionage being conducted over the internet and other sorts of online uh, systems. So how is this technology, how, how have technological advances in this realm, how have they made it easier and harder for the FBI to conduct these operations? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of similar um, to what we had talked about before. It's the access that um, is given, you know, via online activities is, is really unprecedented, right? And so, um, the ability for uh, adversaries from you know the comforts of their own home to conduct these operations has has changed the the dynamic uh, to a certain degree. Um, and what it has often become a game of is 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 attribution, right? Trying to figure out who has done what. So, the, one of the reasons it's so attractive is it's it's, it's cost effective. Um, another is that their attribution can be extremely difficult, right? You, you don't actually have a person there that you can get your hands on, although you may see their footprints or digital footprints of when they've come into a, a particular system. Um, and doing that attribution can be really difficult. And so I think that this has presented a, a number of issues um, for not just uh, you know, the FBI and the U.S. government, for, but for all governments, um, that this is extremely difficult to protect against. Um, one of the responses, as you've seen from China, is they've really essentially proposed a completely different model of how the internet should function. This idea of cyber sovereignty, localization of data. Russia's done very similar sorts of things. Um, essentially being able to kind of cut themselves off from outside um, connections if they so desire. Um, the U.S. has taken a very different um, approach to this and this uh, kind of cyber stakeholder uh, viewpoint, which is, you know, it's much more kind of dispersed ownership and management of the internet, um, where the government is is one of many players, um, but not the only one. Um, but it's it's made it extremely difficult, but you be, shouldn't, um, you know, the reasons that China is proposing 
the, the the model that they have is, is so that they can maintain this control and so that they can ensure that it's not the internet is not being used for all different types of operations that would threaten uh, the control of the CCP. Just to emphasize, one of the things that is is so much more difficult. But again, if if law enforcement organizations, one of the primary responsibilities is to, you know to hold wrongdoers accountable. Um, it is it is it becomes much more difficult to in effect arrest wrongdoers even if you've identified them and so um you know that that is a in, in many ways that is a game changer in many regards and so it's you know there, there's got to be a broader government response when you can't get your hands on the actual wrongdoers now, just a couple more questions before we wrap up today. And so in recent months and in years, we've seen deep divides within our country. We've seen polarization. And uh, while foreign adversaries exploiting such divides is nothing new, a lot of attention has been paid to it uh, in the past couple of years, handful of years. And so, uh, of course, uh, there are consequences to U.S. domestic security when we have our foreign adversaries exploiting our internal divides. Uh, particularly when we're looking at the events of January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. Uh, and so they, they're they taking advantage of this. And I guess the, the question is, is the FBI prepared to address the domestic dimensions of these threats, particularly given the partisan attacks that the FBI has faced in recent years? So um, I, I think that we want to be careful. There's a, there's a number of you know, ongoing investigations um, with regards to this that uh, obviously, Bill and I are not a part of, and we've been out since that has, has happened. Um, but it's just probably not prudent to, to comment on anything specific with regards to those. Um, but kind of just starting from your earlier point of, as you said, historically, this is nothing new. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, this is something that has been, you know, a, a tried and true method um, of the Soviets before them, uh, the Russians, and the Russians and the Chinese continue to to use this as a as a potential way to sow discord in the United States. They look for these divisions, right? They look for these ways in which they can um, kind of further that divide and accentuate it. Um, and that, in their mind, is, is you know, essentially uh, undermines the, the efficacy of our system, right, of our open sort of transparent system that has, you know, we sort of, for the entire world to see, for better or for worse, you're, you're watching arguments between different parts of our country as we figure out ways um, we're going to move forward and make decisions. Um, and, and this is, makes it extremely difficult, um, you know, for this type of, you know, what would be a, a normally very cantankerous or difficult problem to deal with when you have foreign intelligence services coming on, on on all sides, right, in many ways, because what they want to do is make things worse. Um, so I would be very careful to ever think that they are for one side or the other. In their mind, it's all about how can you undermine the United States? That's their ultimate goal. They care very little about how the politics are decided in the United States, except as how it might affect them directly. Um, and so, uh, you know, if anything, we just encourage people to think, to understand that that is why they might get involved. It's, it's never because they care about the specific issue, but it's only because they want to undermine and hurt the United States. From my end, um, obviously, the, 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 our, our government is going to be doing a lot to try to address these issues. But I actually, I, I guess I see the, the problem a bit differently in that, you know, ho hopefully the government will not, I mean, in our government is not going to be doing things that will increase the divide. But 
to me, they're not the answer. The government isn't the answer. It, this is a broader societal problem that is Holden keenly points out our adversaries are looking to exploit. But at the end of the day, like the American people have to fix this problem. Again, the, the government can help and hopefully won't hurt, but it's not, this isn't an issue for them. Um, and you, know, you may disagree, others who, who listen to this may disagree, but I'm just convinced, although it's not like I have scientific data to, uh, to support my thinking, but I'm just convinced that the divides in this country are not as extensive as they're made out to be. Um, not, not during COVID, but before COVID. Um, not like I was some huge extensive or extensively traveled, but I, you know, over the years I've gotten to a lot of parts of this country. And I, I just, the, the people I'd come in contact with and the, the people now that I still keep in touch with, you know, friends, family, what have you, I, I, I'm just absolutely convinced we have far more in common than, than we have differences. I just think, and, and this, is, this isn't meant to be a shot at the media or whomever else, but there's, I think that there's been certain pot stirs in our country who are capitalizing on this, this divide and that it at times can seem much greater than it actually is. And I guess what I'm getting at is just the idea that by and large, the, the people I know and have interacted through the years generally want similar things. And, um, you know, I mean, meaning whether it's, you know, to, to feel safe and to have a job in which they feel valued at work and to be, be, be respected, you know, both in a, in a professional and a personal sense by, by others that they engage with. They want opportunities to improve their lot in life. And if, if they have children, they're a children's lot in life. They want the freedom to exercise uh, uh, the religious faith, whatever that may be. And I, I could go on and on. But what I'm getting at is the commonalities, when you actually step back and think of it, I think are overwhelmingly greater than the things we disagree on. It, it's just something is happening that the, the disagreements, I think, are getting amplified in an absolutely unhealthy manner. And obviously, our foreign adversaries are taking advantage of that and trying to amplify them further. But it, we, we've, we've got to find a way to come together as a, as a people to correct this. And I, I think of something a, a former FBI director, Comey, used to say, and he, he said something to the effect of, it's difficult to hate up close. And so, again, with with the divides, how many of the, the, the people who think they hate another group in our country have actually spent time and broken bread and tried to understand the stories of the, 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 the group that they so-called hate? Um, I just think it's, it's a perilous time in our country, not just what's happening and, again, what certain people think internally, but, of course, all the threats we're facing externally. And I, it's a long way of saying that I, I think we've got to go, we've got to bend over backwards to try to understand our, our neighbors in this country better to overcome our differences. But our, 
the, the biggest threats facing us are not internally. I'm convinced of that. So in closing out this interview, uh, you mentioned, you know, it's difficult to hate up close. And we've had this long conversation about all of these uh, counterintelligence threats and uh, so on. Uh, what can the American, what should the American people do to be aware of, you know, these threats? Uh, what can they do to further engage? Well, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll take that one first. Um, it, it, it starts with acknowledging that there is a threat. Um, I always liken it to, uh, um, you know, what I've heard are the, um, you know, the, the call it the, the support or help programs for, for people with, um, um, with alcohol or drug addictions, what have you. And, and I've read things where, like, uh, unless there's acknowledgement that there's a problem, it's very difficult to get people the help that they, that they, that they need. Um, but the reason I bring it up is like, in regards to this, this foreign intelligence threat, it starts with Americans saying, yeah, it, it's real, it's really bad, and it can affect me and my business, and I, I, I've got to know more about it and do things. But while I think there's been an awareness, a greater awareness of the threat, I still don't think it's to a level across the country that is necessary to position us to effectively combat it. It's going the right direction, but we're not there yet. We have to admit we have a problem and it is big and it is coming for us. All right, I'm gonna ask just one more question before we wrap up today, just because it's on my mind. And we, we like to ask our guests who have worked uh, in the intelligence community, how many burn bags do you guys think you've used throughout your career? Oh my God. <laughs> Um, I try not to print or I tried not to print very often, but, um, I don't know, a thousand, maybe not that, but just probably not that much over a 15 year period. Bill, maybe you're more. Yeah. I, I was going to say, I, I, I wish I could say for the, <laughs> that I didn't print a lot, but I, I, I'd be lying. I, I printed a lot. Um, so I, I, I'd say in the, the high thousands, at least. On that note, uh, Bill Holden, thank you so much for joining us. This was a long conversation, but this was a very great conversation. We covered a lot of ground. Uh, and thank you for your service, both of you, uh, your long and distinguished careers. And I know our audience is going to very much enjoy this conversation. So thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Our pleasure. <laughs>